0: Talking history on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk one hundred six to one hundred eight with me, Patrick Gagan. For Robert Kennedy, it was one of the most disgraceful episodes in American history. For Abraham Lincoln, at the time, it was an unjust war started on false pretenses, and for the country defeated in the war, it meant losing half of its territory. Well, in tonight's show we're looking at the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848 and we'll be debating its impact on the United States, on Mexico and whether it was a catalyst for civil wars in both countries. We'd love you to join our discussion. Just send us a text on 53106, text costs 30 cents, or you can email us at at newstalk.com Last week, we looked at ancient Greece through the lives of 50 men and women, discussed the impact of Parnell and celebrated the two hundredth and 250th anniversary of a library that is a hidden treasure on our island. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on the Mexican-American War. To Mexico, this was a case of American imperialism, designed to cheat them out of Texas and California. But in the United States, it was a conflict that divided opinion. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the philosopher and poet, predicted at the time that the United States would conquer Mexico. But Mexico, he said, will poison us. And so it came to pass, with many believing that it helped bring about the American Civil War. It also led to civil war in Mexico. And so in tonight's show we want to assess how the war came about, how it was won, and the impact it had on both of the countries involved. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our stellar pal- panel of experts. Professor Peter Gardino is the author of the multiple award-winning book *The Dead March: A History of the Mexican-American War*, published to great acclaim last year, and he is Provost Professor at the Department of History at Indiana University, Bloomington. Professor Amy S. Greenberg is the George Winfrey Professor of American History at Penn State University, an expert on the relationship between the United States and the rest of the world. Her books include the. Award Award-winning A Wicked War, Polk, Clay, Lincoln and the 1846 US Invasion of Mexico. Professor Daniel Geary is the Mark Piggott Professor in American History at Trinity College Dublin and is a leading expert and commentator on the intellectual, political and cultural history of the United States. Professor Donald S. Fraser is Professor of History at McMurray University in Abilene, Texas. The award-winning author of three books on the American Civil War, he is also the General Editor of the US and Mexico at War, and he's also involved with major cultural and heritage projects, including one on a Mexican War battlefield. Professor John C. Pinheiro is Professor of History at Aquinas College, Missouri and is an expert on the early American American Republic as well as the Mexican-American War and his books include Missionaries of Republicanism, A Religious History of the Mexican-American War and Manifest Ambition, James K. Polk and Civil Military Relations During the Mexican War. And last, but certainly by no means least, joining and and bringing to a, 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 a suitable end of our panel, Professor Timothy J. Henderson, Professor of History at Auburn University Montgomery and the author of several books on Mexican history, including A Glorious Defeat, Mexico and its War with the United States, which was praised for showing how the war helped to cement the image of the United States as an arrogant, aggressive and imperialist nation. Well, you're all very welcome. And Peter, we might begin with you. And we might begin with the idea of how this war is remembered and known, because it seems to be something of a forgotten war for the United States, but I suspect it's very much a remembered war for Mexico.
1: Well, I agree with you on both points. Um, This is a war for which there's very little memorialization in the United States. Uh, There's no major monument on the Mall in Washington, Washington, D.C. or anything like that. Uh, it's a war that's taught in American uh, history classrooms, especially for high school students, uh, you know, primarily as a kind of prelude to the Civil War um, and an example of American expansionism. Um, while in Mexico, it's, it's, it's much more active in people's consciousness of what history is. Um, there's certainly many myths that circulate about this war in, in Mexico, but there, there's certainly it's, 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 it's commemorated much more in Mexico than in the United States.
0: And Peter, it's fascinating when you look at the the military figures who were involved on the American side. It's really like reading a, a roll call of the generals from the American Civil War. You have famously Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant, but also people like Beauregard. Jackson, who becomes Stonewall Jackson, Meade, McClellan, Pickett, Sherman is even there. Uh, Zachary Taylor, who's soon to become President of the United States, is one of the leading generals. It is quite an incredible roll call, and you would almost think that for that reason, it would be uh, better studied.
1: Well, that is one of the ways that American military historians have approached this war: is to see it as a sort of school for the Civil War, because you know people like Lee and people like Grant and Jackson, they were very all very young officers during this war. Most of them um, were working, you know, basically as company officers uh, with, with only a few troops. Uh, Lee was more prominent. He was he was he was uh, pretty you know pretty close to the general staff and did a lot of interesting things. Um, and in fact, even like some of the American historical novels of the war actually come out of, 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 of this experience of like, we, we want to look at these people when they were young during the Civil War, right, during the, during the Mexican American War, people who, so it's been authors uh, of historical fiction who primarily focus on the Civil War, who written about the Mexican War um, in the United States typically. Dan, I wonder is one
0: of the reasons why it doesn't perhaps receive the attention is because it was an unequal conflict that, uh, and that perhaps given the, the disputed circumstances of how it came about, America doesn't perhaps come out of it particularly well and therefore people prefer to avoid it.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, you know, to put it simply, a land grab uh, against uh, weaker power. And it's interesting to think that uh, the event that Americans do remember and that is memorialized is the Alamo, which is a defeat in the Texan War of Independence, which is inseparable, really, from the lead up to the Mexican-American War. So why is it that Americans remember the defeat instead of their victories? It's a bit similar to the way that Americans remember, say, Custer's Last Stand, a defeat against the Indians rather than, uh, or the indigenous peoples of North America, rather than all of the victories, because... In both cases, it's an unfair fight. Uh, they're taking advantage uh, against uh, we, you know a weaker group of people in a, in a quite uh, obvious way, and that doesn't suit well to uh, the nation's view of itself, especially as it goes forward into the twentieth century.
0: Tim, it is very interesting on that on that point about it being on, on an unequal war. When you look at the the resources of of each country and what they're able to put into the war. You know, in in a way, the result is never really in doubt.
3: Yeah, I think most Mexicans who were in a position to know uh, uh, what was going to happen, really, it was a foregone conclusion that Mexico was going to lose the war. It had antiquated weaponry. It had a very politicized military. A lot of the people who advanced in the Mexican military did so, not because of any kind of military talent, but just because they backed the right horse in one or another rebellion. So Mexico was by, in, by no means uh, ready for this war. And really, the leaders of the of the country, prior to the war, they, for all their bombast, they tried... Fairly hard to get out of going to war with the United States because of this, you know, the, their awareness of the discrepancy.
0: Amy, it's very interesting when you look at what was happening in the United States at this time and their attitudes towards Mexico. And there does really seem to be a sense of a belief in American superiority and, and a belief in Mexican inferiority that they, they didn't seem to really uh, believe that Mexico would challenge them in any way.
4: Oh, that's absolutely right, Patrick. Um, James K. Polk, the president at the time, he wrote to his brother and his brother was posted abroad and and said, don't bother coming home. This war is going to be over within six months. So uh, I don't think anyone in the United States thought that the Mexican soldiers would fight as hard as they did um, because there was just so much racism.
0: And Amy, a racial, uh, a racial dimension, but also it seems a gender dimension as well in terms of uh, the belief that they would be liberators and, and, and that the Mexican women would be greeting them with open arms and, and, and also a belief that uh, this was something that was going to be great for the American spirit.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the United States um, saw itself as this superior conquering nation. And, and um, if you look at the popular literature of the period, Uh, It's suffused with this idea that um, the Mexican women are just waiting for American men to go down there and, um, you know, prove to them what what a real man is like because uh, they could see that their own men were lazy or, um, you know, inferior in some way compared to the great American soldier.
0: And John, that also brings us then to a, a related dimension to it, which was anti-Catholicism, and uh, and we were aware of that strain running through American history, and it does seem to be very strong here when when they were looking at Mexico and Mexicans.
5: Yeah, the war is a, it's a really critical moment for anti-Catholicism in the United States, and I think I think to to use racism doesn't it doesn't really say enough about the war, because in the American's mind, uh, race and religion were were so tied up in their their understanding of what a Mexican was and their understanding of what an American was by the outbreak of war. So this was about, the war is about 15 years into a high point of immigration that exacerbated nativism and anti-Catholicism in the United States. And it it took some imagination and the help of some folks like Lyman Beecher to to transfer some of that uh, irrationality and in, in Republican arguments, with a, a lowercase R Republican arguments uh, against Catholicism, and just transfer that into Mexico and say, this is this is what Catholic countries look like. I mean, this place is uh, unstable, they would say, and economically backward. And maybe it was better off under the Aztecs. They're they're all across the board when it comes to. Uh, mixing race and religion, I would say, and, and trying to understand uh Mexico and why it would be easy to defeat and why it was so it deserved to be defeated. This would be the the chosen people driving the Canaanites into the sea. We we read that a lot in the literature.
0: Donald, it's very interesting the timing of the war because it really was the worst possible time for Mexico because of all of the internal uh, upheaval that was taking place there and it really wasn't the time you wanted to be fighting a war with your more powerful neighbour.
6: No, it was the uh, great age of cabillos and uh, Mexico was tottering toward uh, essentially becoming a failed state and so You have this strange phenomena of any time you could raise an army in Mexico, you had to wonder, was that army going to defend the national sovereignty, or was it going to conduct a coup d'etat and replace the government that raised it? So it's extraordinarily um, uh, unstable. Um, There is a sizable army in Mexico on paper, but it is absolutely uh, corrupt. They have a thing called the Fuerro Militar, or the right of uh, being an army officer, military officer, which means that uh, you don't have to live by the same rules as everybody else in the country. So if you commit some sort of egregious crime, you're tried by your uh, brother officers, not by civil courts. There is no civil jurisdiction, or very little. And so you have this sort of strange, rotten army that looks great on paper, But in reality, it's a little rough in the field. You have political corruption. You have all sorts of stuff going on in Mexico that is going to put it at a distinct disadvantage.
0: Peter, it's very interesting when you look at the causes of the war and how it actually breaks out. There is so much that resonates with uh, us today in the 21st century when we look at other other wars that have started around the world. And I'm fascinated by the the role that a young congressman, Abraham Lincoln, took a very courageous stand against the war and demanding to see the spot where where, uh, uh, American blood had been shed on American soil and the way he, despite much criticism and abuse, uh, uh, argued that point.
1: So there were a series of, of people in the Whig Party, uh, famous politicians of the time that we don't remember as well as we remember Abraham Lincoln, who were vociferous opponents of this war. Uh, Lincoln went on, of course, to become uh, America's most famous president ever, probably. So we remember him very well, but he was he was not completely alone um, um, in his opposition to the war. Um, and. You know, he he was concerned about you know Polk had told Congress that American and a, a skirmish on the Rio Grande on the on the northern side of the Rio Grande um, had had been shed and that that was American soil. Um, but if the, the problem was that we had annexed Texas and that had not been part of Texas from um, you know from the point of view of anyone, it was not it was not a part of a part of what is now Texas that had any Anglo population at all um at the time it was it was occupied by mexican ranchers uh who had been uh pulling back steadily under the under the attack of comanche indians who had been you know stealing their livestock so it was harder to make a living um and you know even the even the 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 the, the us army that marched into that disputed territory many of the officers believed they were marching into mexico when they marched into that territory uh, uh you know they um you know they had been given a a map that showed that as part of the us and they thought that map was a joke basically um and so you know Lincoln was actually on firm geographic ground when he said, well, you know show me the spot where this happened and I'll tell you uh, but but uh, you know Polk had had established the sort of notion and uh, you know and certainly in the Democratic party that 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 was part of the United States and not part of Mexico um and he won the day because, in the end, you know, in terms of getting the authorization to raise troops to actually invade Mexico, the argument was that the American army um, down there on the border was in danger uh, from this this, this uh, Mexican army and that, you know, failure to vote for that would have been not supporting the troops, which is the kind of rhetoric you hear in American politics again and again in the late 20th century.
0: Amy, we've mentioned the president of the United States at the time, James Polk, and I'm, I'm just not entirely sure what he was playing at. Was he deliberately trying to provoke a war by, by sending the troops in there? Was it just something that happened and he just took advantage of it? What exactly were his motivations?
4: Okay, so when Polk was elected, it was in large part because he was willing to say um, it is the United States' manifest destiny to annex Texas to um, gain Oregon from Great Britain and to expand across the continent. And and so when he took office, he he sent these troops down into this disputed, well, first he negotiated bringing Texas into the Union. Then he sent troops down there, and his goal was very clearly to um, make Mexico attack the U.S. troops, which, of course, they did. Now, whether he actually was trying to provoke a war is up for debate because again, he had such a low opinion of the Mexican government and Mexican soldiers that it's quite possible he thought that, um, if Zachary Taylor's army of 4,000 just attacked Mexico's troops on the border, that Mexico would give up. And they would say, okay, fine. Um, We accept the boundaries for Texas that you claim, and um, we'll sell you California, which is really what Polk was looking for.
0: Very good. Well, tonight we are debating the Mexican American War of 1846 to 1848. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be finding out how exactly the United States won, the amount of land that was uh, secured by that victory, and lots more besides. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history. History. On News Talk. Well, welcome back as we debate the Mexican-American War. We have an absolutely brilliant panel of experts tonight. Professor Peter Gardino, Professor Amy Greenberg, Professor Daniel Geary, Professor Donald Fraser, Professor John Pinheiro and Professor Timothy Henderson. Donald, I want to ask you about uh, the two leading American generals, Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor. They seem to have incredible successes during the the campaign and I, I know that the Duke of Wellington back in Britain was following the war very carefully and thought that Scott was finished at one point and then was astounded by the victory that he secured and thought it made him the greatest military figure of the age that on the military side it, they, they were very interesting and, 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 and seemed to become as they became more popular then, there seemed to be worries about what kind of political ambitions they might have.
6: Yes, America loves a winning soldier. That is absolutely part of our national character. And uh, Zachary Taylor actually found the uh, going tougher in northern Mexico than he anticipated. Uh, so the Palo Alto and Resaca de la Palma campaigns went off fairly well, fairly easily. Uh, He brushed back the Mexican army to Monterey. And at that point, I think that the president of the United States, James K. Polk, was hoping for a negotiated settlement. Sort of, all right, let's give them an honorable way out. Let's let them put up their dukes. We'll have a little bit of a brawl. And then Mexico can say, well, that didn't go so well, but how big a check can you write? And I think everybody was surprised on the American side when Mexico didn't roll over and play dead. So then that meant that you had to invade into the interior of Mexico, which is pretty rough country. I mean, logistically, it's a nightmare. Uh, It is um, short on water, long on thorns and stingers, as they would say at the time. And then uh, taking the uh, uh, city of Monterey, the strategic city of Monterey, was tough. And uh, the Mexicans really fought the Americans to a standstill in that battle so finally taylor lets the mexicans negotiate a settlement which really was buying him some time the mexicans withdrew and taylor's then in northern mexico saying well look at that you know i'm the winner here and people started mumbling man man he would make a great president back here in the states maybe uh, he is a rising star well the united states had two problems first of all taylor was going to side with the Whigs, so there's a political dimension and the other problem is mexico still full of fight which meant that the united states army had to increase dramatically and you had to shift the focus of the campaign and that's where winfield scott comes in politically he's aligned with the uh, uh forces that are in the white house at the time he leans democratic and uh he's a capable uh administrator and is able to put together an army of regulars, which he essentially takes away from Zachary Taylor's army to also diminish him, uh, but also supplemented with volunteers from the U.S. states. And his campaign from Veracruz to Mexico City is absolutely uh, a remarkable campaign. And um, Mexico tried a uh, a defeat them in detail strategy. Uh, They raised an army in the north to destroy Zachary Taylor. Uh, they failed at the Battle of Buena Vista, but were able to send that army back against Scott, and really, they got bulldozed as well, all the way back to Mexico City. And then there's some pretty rugged fighting around there, but Scott prevails, and uh, Wellington's uh, characterization of him as being one of the leading captains in world history uh, is well-earned
0: very interesting. Elizabeth and Rahini has texted in on 53106 to say that she's really enjoying the show uh, on a subject that she knows very little about and would love to learn uh, where uh, she should uh, start reading. Well actually our panellists have some wonderful books, Peter Gardino The Dead March, Amy Greenberg A Wicked War um, uh, Timothy Henderson A Glorious Defeat, uh, John Pinheiro has, has a wonderful book on the religious element of it and then also Manifest Ambition on Civil Military Relations uh, so uh, uh, so it's, 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 it, there's a, a wonderful uh, uh, library of books to go uh, Jim and Dunboyne Boyne uh, would like to know more about Ulysses S. Grant's part in the Mexican War a uh, Hero to Zero as I understand a brilliant show, thanks. Tim I wonder about that because I read great things about Robert E. Lee's um, military engagements during it and how, how, how much he impressed people like Winfield Scott what about Grant, do we know uh, how successful he was?
3: Um, that's for me.
0: Uh, y- yes, just if you if you have any uh, thoughts on that. Um,
3: actually, I think that question might be better put to one of the people who specialize on the American end of it. I really huh? haven't uh, delved into yeah, the. This, military
5: This is John. I, I could speak. I could speak to that. Oh, very good. Uh, Thanks, the, John. Sure. At the, at the time of the beginning of the war, uh, Grant Grant wrote, and I, it was either his diary or, or a letter. Wrote something like, "If I could come to Mexico as a private, I would come no other way." I mean, he he knew that uh, the the path through the military echelon would 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 have to involve battle and going to the battlefield. And uh, he comported himself well in Mexico, but was nowhere nearly as important as, as Lee, who m- managed to. Uh, find ways into to Mexico City in that campaign, but in his memoirs and after the civil war of course had intervened, and in his memoirs, which he wrote many years later, he referred to the mexican american war as one of the most unjust ever waged he may have said something like in the history of mankind but 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 certainly he had he, he saw the war very differently than he had as a young man after after witnessing the consequences of it, so he, like most of his countrymen, thought the Mexican war really had had been more than a catalyst, almost a a cause, really, of of the Civil War.
0: Very interesting. And, and Tim, it's interesting when you look at the different levels of enthusiasm in both countries that there seems to be uh, uh, a huge drive to get involved in in the United States, but nowhere near the same levels of enthusiasm in Mexico.
3: Well, actually, uh, I and uh, Professor Gardino had very different interpretations of this, so that's kind of an interesting point to make. Uh, The impression that I have is kind of one that builds on the writings of Mexican liberals at the time of the war who said that one of the biggest reasons why Mexico could not really mobilize to fight the invaders was because Mexico was not a a true nation. It was so divided by region and by class and by race and by ethnicity, uh, especially by class, because you had a, a huge Indian population, many of whom did not speak what uh, elites considered to be the, the, the national language, Spanish, uh, and they lived in, in great poverty and they suffered mostly exploitation and they just didn't have a huge incentive to pick up arms and risk their lives in order to fight to defend that government.
0: Very good. Well, Peter, I might bring you in on that then uh, in terms of the different responses in both countries and, and your take on it.
1: So, in some ways, I agree with, with uh, Professor Henderson, and in other ways, I disagree with him. Um, but in my research on the war, what I found was that when you looked beyond what the liberals wrote looking back on the war, and you looked at the experience of the people during the war, that, in, in fact, uh, many people were willing to give up both their blood and their treasure um, to fight the Americans for a variety of reasons, not always, not always unadulterated nationalism. Um, and, you know this is this is very important to consider, uh, and I agree with 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 Dr. Henderson about the 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 Mexico was actually a very divided place at the time, was a very very unequal place at the time, and that some people were 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 relatively indifferent to this. Uh, but the biggest problem that Mexico had was that Mexico had about a third of the per capita income that the United States did, and the biggest problem that Mexican uh, politicians had was raising enough money to feed armies and to arm armies and the biggest problem that your average Mexican soldier had was surviving starvation rather than surviving contact with the Americans. So there were many Mexicans who were, who were very enthusiastic about fighting the war, especially against Scott's campaign as it neared central Mexico, which had a much larger population um and 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 also a population that had been much more exposed to the idea that Mexico was a nation um at that point. Um because it was a nation in formation, um just as the United States was. Um you know, so And the other thing to keep in mind is that many Americans were not all that enthusiastic about this war, um, including Americans who were in Mexico. Uh, The volunteers who signed on initially for one year uh, when their year was up, um, almost all of them went back to the United States and left Scott's army in the lurch and dramatically um, delayed his campaign to Mexico City because he had to arrange for all of them to go back down to the coast and, and out through Veracruz and wait for new volunteers to arrive from the U.S. And the second wave of volunteers recruited in the U.S., those regiments filled out much more slowly um, than the first wave because by then they started to understand this was going to be a long, longer war than anyone realized and that many people who were going into these volunteer regiments were going to die of disease if not from contact with the enemy.
0: Amy, very interesting there to hear about uh, some Americans not being hugely enthusiastic, especially those who who were directly involved and it directly affected. But then we also had some Americans who were super enthusiastic and who believed that uh, this was an opportunity to take all of the land from Mexico.
4: That's exactly right. Well, um, I, first, I just want to say, because none of your listeners can see this, that the whole time that Peter was just talking, I was nodding vigorously because he really captures... Um, the reaction of the volunteers that are in Mexico and how they're just done with it. And, you know, one of the big reasons that um, volunteering fell off is that the men who volunteered to go fight Mexico, they thought they were going to have this heroic experience of hand-to-hand combat um, against a a Mexican. And that just didn't happen for most of them. Um, In terms of the all-Mexico movement, I think it's one of the most fascinating elements of this war, which is that after the United States captures Mexico City, there is a movement, particularly centered in New York and the cities of the East Coast, to take all of Mexico as spoils of war, and it is, it didn't, pan out, obviously, for a number of reasons, including the fact that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, showed up in the United States, and so the war came to a close, and also because a lot of Southerners, um, including John C. Calhoun, the biggest uh, pro-slavery voice um, in the South, we're opposed to taking all of Mexico because they didn't want to incorporate Mexicans into the United States in large numbers. But, but a lot of expansionists saw the idea of taking all of Mexico and incorporating it into the U.S. as the next stop on Manifest Destiny. Like we, we we've conquered Mexico and all of that land, for reasons that Dr. Panero pointed out, you have a lot to do with Catholicism, all of that land really deserves to be in U.S. hands.
0: Wow. Dan, it's very interesting. Uh, I don't know, would they have been able to get away with it? Could the United States have gotten away with taking the entire amount of territory from Mexico? Yes, but the question is, what would that
2: have entailed? Because uh, the parts of Mexico that the US does get are pretty sparsely populated. Um, So you have maybe 75,000, say, uh, Mexicans who, because they are even considered inferior, they're considered white, they're given citizenship rights. But if the U.S. were to take in all of Mexico, including central Mexico, which was far more um, densely populated, then the question becomes, well, are we going to allow all these people to become American citizens? And if we do, you know, is this going to be a threat to the republic? This is what John C. Calhoun and the Southerners and other racists were concerned about. And so in a way, even though racism fuels the war, it also, you know, stops it at a certain point. Um and there was the idea in the US, of course, which had fought a war against Britain that even though, yes, it was a, a certain kind of imperial power, it was a settler imperial power, but that it would be one in which people would have the ability to govern themselves. And so if Mexico was going to be you know, all of Mexico was going to be taken by the US, it would have been had, had to be ruled by military occupation. Um, they, there wasn't the idea that people in central Mexico were going to become states of the United States, and so now it looks like you know the U.S. is kind of becoming the British Empire, and that's not something what they want to do. They do it 50 years later in the Philippines, but uh, at that time it w- it was something a lot of Americans didn't want to. It's not a road they want to go down.
0: And Dan, the slavery question is so interesting, the slavery subtext because I know that back in Ireland, people like Daniel O'Connell uh, were very. Against Texas because they didn't he didn't like the idea of 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 a slave of a slave territory and becoming a slave state. Whereas sympathetic to Mexico because, because it was Catholic and and, and anti-slavery and that uh, as you're adding more territory to the United States, slavery just and that shadow looms so large.
2: Absolutely, I mean in a way, it's slavery that uh, begins the war in the first place, in the sense that uh, this is. A- secession of Texas uh, or the, the Texans from Mexico has a lot to do with the fact that Mexico, could, Mexico had outlawed slavery. Um, and then, you know, of course, it's a whole issue of slavery because all this territory gets uh, does get taken, as a result of the Mexican-American War, and the question becomes, are these, are these going to become free states or slave states? And that's what leads to the Civil War. There was no inherent contradiction, if you like, between the slave states and the non-slave states. But what precipitates the war is this whole question of What's going to happen to these new new territories? Lincoln, for example, his position is free soil. It's not, get, let's get rid of slavery. It's no slavery in the new Western territories. And that's a position that creates the Civil War.
0: Donald, there's also an Irish dimension to the war, and you have Irish fighting on both sides. And then uh, in some circumstances, you also have the same Irish fighting on, on, on both sides when uh, they, they, they switched during the war.
6: <laughs> that's true. Uh, One of the things that the Mexicans were able to play on was the anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant sentiment that was rife in the United States at the time. And a bunch of these troops go down to Mexico, and they are treated uh, very poorly. And just being a regular in the United States Army was rough. Uh, They were not uh, particularly interested in your opinion. And uh, they wanted you to, uh, to... follow discipline, and they would flog you if you uh, breached discipline. So a bunch of these guys were looking at a pathway to citizenship in the United States through service in the United States Army. So these are Irish immigrants. And a bunch of them are looking around going, man, if this is the country I'm trying to join, I don't think I want any part of it. And then when propaganda comes over from the Mexican line saying, look, you come over here, it's Catholics helping Catholics and we're uh, fighting against an oppressor nation, uh, it makes perfect sense. And, in fact, enough American troops of Irish, recent Irish immigration, especially, desert to the Mexican cause that the Mexicans were able to organize and field the San Patricio Battalion. And uh, it does uh, pretty good service in the Central Valley campaign and uh, bleeds, uh, bleeds heroically on behalf of the Republic of Mexico.
0: John it's let's look at the territory that is gained by the United States and, and and an incredible amount all the way to California and it's something that must be difficult when people study the the history of California because if you were to Disagree and just disapprove of the way uh, it, it 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 was taken from Mexico. I don't know what the necessarily the implications for that would be today, but it's it's certainly interesting when you look at the the amount of land that is secured and the implications then for for these parts of what later becomes states in the United States.
5: Yeah, my my view is that Polk most certainly wanted California, and California above all, and. I think he really did fool himself into thinking that if if the United States could take uh, what was known as the the northern Mexican frontier, which was sparsely populated relative to the rest of the country, in which New Spain had had difficulty populating with white Hispanics, and then so had Mexico to the point where they had invited Americans into that part of uh, that part of their country, that if the United States could just take that. Maybe in Mexico, in Polk's view, would see reason, and they would sell him California. And, of course, that's that's not what they did. But California, the way I understand Polk, that's that's the real prize for Polk. And this vast area known as New Mexico also came in, which includes several current uh, U.S. states. And Texas, which had been officially annexed just a few days Prior to Polk becoming president, that's all hammered out while Polk's, Polk's president. Uh, but uh, if you read di- different Mexican War histories, they'll talk about the United States winning Texas in the war, not winning Texas in the war. But it's all about how they're going to draw the borders at that point. Uh, but that that northern Mexican frontier—I uh, I forget which uh, w- which of us earlier had mentioned um, had mentioned uh, the uh, 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 Mexico. Having difficulty uh, uh, forming a nation, as the United States was in formation, well as, as Italy and Germany were in formation, moving ahead a few a few decades. Uh, there, there's a lot of nation building and border making at this time period in the rest of the Americas as well, with experiments in South America that are eventually going to go from one one country to to five. So there's there's a lot in flux here when you when you zoom in, at least to look at the Mexican question. Uh, the, the question of, of justice is always going to enter in, as, as Grant mentioned many decades later.
0: Okay, well, we are talking about the American the Mexican War, the Mexican American War of 1846 to 1848. We're going to take a quick break now. But when we come back, we'll be exploring the legacy of the war right up to the present day and whether Emerson was right that Mexico will poison us. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back as we debate the Mexican-American war war with an absolutely brilliant panel of experts, Peter Guardino, Amy Greenberg, Daniel Geary, Donald Fraser, John Pinheiro and Timothy Henderson. Peter, can we talk about the casualties on both sides? To what extent do we know how many were killed, how many were injured, and I suppose the extent of the, the suffering on both sides?
1: It's easier to talk about the extent of the suffering than it is to quantify the casualties. Uh, for the United States Army in Mexico, uh, we have, you know, pretty good statistics. Um, for the Mexican Army in Mexico, we don't necessarily have good statistics. For Mexican civilians, we have practically zero um, in the terms of statistics. Um, it, it was certainly a war um, in which um, there was a great deal of suffering on all sides, that the, there was a great deal of violence and also a great deal of what you would call sort of collateral deaths from disease and in the Mexican days from starvation and from lack of water. Um, uh, which was a, a real problem for armies operating in, in northern Mexico. Um, it, it, certainly, in, it, in terms of the, of the casualties, it's not like the U.S. Civil War, where the really incredibly massive numbers of, of people actually killed, um, It's, but it, it's significant. Um, and and uh, Mexican War, um, you know, U.S. soldiers in the Mexican War uh, when they were writing their memoirs or when they were writing their letters, uh, wrote often about the, the 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 psychological pain of seeing comrades die. Um, and in volunteer regiments, it was very often your comrade was your boyhood friend uh, who who died of disease, who who died of violence while they were in Mexico. Um, one of the principal things, and this is going to sound a little funny, uh, but one of the principal things that that I learned spending years working on this war is, you know, I thought. Before I started, decided to decided to work on a war. I thought, yeah, I'm I'm basically a pacifist. I I don't I don't like wars. Uh, by the time I was done, having waded through so much death and um, the documents, I really didn't like wars. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, it it you know you, you start to understand just kind of what a trauma what a trauma this is for people for the winners as well as the losers.
0: And P- Peter, when. Emerson said that Me- that they would win, predicted they would win, but said that uh, Mexico will poison us. What exactly did he mean? Was it that by adding so much new territory you were creating uh, pressures to decide whether these would be slave or free states?
1: So I'm not uh, much of an expert on Emerson, uh, although my mother was an English teacher. Um, but I think that what he mostly was talking about is what the what the effect of being a conqueror uh, what effect that would have on American democracy? Okay? Um, that it would it it would make the United States um, less democratic. It would go against the the values that he thought the United States represented. Okay, so basically values of freedom. Um, and in that sense, it did. I mean, one of one of the legacies of the war, one of, one of the most obvious legacies is the, is the U.S. Civil War. Um, but one of the less obvious legacies that that ended up having a very long-term impact on the United States was it it very thoroughly racialized Mexicans. There was a process that really had started with the with the Texas Revolution and people's reactions to the Texas Revolution. But certainly by the end of the war, there were a set of ideas about who Mexicans were that had become very um, firmly and concretely planted um, in United States culture. Uh, and these ideas were repeated, you know, throughout the rest of the 19th century, throughout the early 20th century in places like the movie industry um, and carry forward, um, you know, to today where, you know, your, your average American still basically has this gut feeling that Mexicans are are uh, poor, violent, untrustworthy um, and lazy. And these are all things that really um, came out of that 19th century um, conquering of Mexico um, and and, you know, they were there this was the kind of thing that that, you know, Donald Trump used as his, his basically his opening line in his twenty sixteen campaign to become president of the United States. And he would just not have been able to do that without this nineteenth century history behind it
0: and i'm sure not in any way aware of that 19th century history either tim you've also explored in your work how it changed the perception or cemented uh, the image of america with some of its neighbors and it wasn't a good image um no. okay sorry no we've got a bad line there so we might just uh we might just come back to you, Tim, on, on a stronger line there because it was just breaking up there. Uh, Dan, let's talk about the legacies because uh, there is that point that I was asking, Tim, about the, the image of the United States. It's, it, it's, 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 it's a huge legacy both in terms of civil war in America, civil war in Mexico, but long term, all the way up to the present day as we heard there with uh, the image of, of, of Mexicans that Donald Trump was, was projecting. It's there in terms of uh, uh, the way America developed, it's the way in terms of America's an imperial power, like it's it's a legacy that resonates so powerfully.
2: It does I mean, yeah, absolutely, all the politics around the border and uh, there are many Mexican-Americans who still say hey, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us um, mm-hmm. but I, another thing that I point out though that uh, that's quite important to American power, that this makes America both, with uh, the United States that is uh, a, an Atlantic and a Pacific power. And this is going to be actually quite crucial to the rise of the U S as a global superpower. Um, you know, even to this very day. So, uh, and in part, I think that's what, uh, Polk and other expansionists had in mind. Uh, but you can see the way that that really plays out over the, over the course of, uh, 19th and 20th and 21st century history.
0: Tim, we've reconnected the line Uh, that question about the the image of the United States it didn't do anything to to, to help people see their neighbour in a better light
3: No, it didn't, and uh, the United States didn't uh, particularly behave all that well, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had provisions where uh, disputes between the two nations were never to be resolved through aggression Uh, and the United States vowed that it would not invade Mexico again, and yet The United States, in fact, did meddle in Mexico in a number of ways and outright invaded during the Mexican Revolution. Once in 1914, it took over the city of Veracruz, and again in uh, 1916, it invaded northern Mexico. So that kind of thing uh, is responsible for making the Mexicans very... um, Uh, Well, the the cornerstone, the traditional cornerstone of Mexico's foreign policy, owing to the fact that it lost half its territory in this war, is the principle of non-intervention, that no power has the right to intervene or meddle in any way uh, in any other country.
0: And Amy, whenever I read books on the American Civil War and the causes, there's usually a mention of the Mexican-American War and you do see that Emerson quote about uh, it's like the arsenic, the man who swallows the arsenic, it, it'll bring him down in turn. But now I wonder if we almost need to see the Emerson quote in a in a much broader context, because based on, on what I've heard here, it's that, uh, that, that arsenic, that poisoning continues right to the present day and that Mexico was a poison. Poison. It injected a poison that that continues to 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 exert a, a terrible legacy.
4: Well, yeah, I, I don't think anyone who lived through the, the Trump era um, would would argue otherwise. Um, it, it continues to poison us, the fact that we swallowed this territory.
0: But Amy, I wonder, but there's, is there anything that can be done? Is it, should there be an acknowledgement of this? Should there be reparations? Uh, You know, uh, I presume it's too far gone for territory to be returned. I I wonder how do you come to terms (laughs) as a country with that legacy?
4: That's funny. Returning territory. No, that's not going to happen. I I do think that um, there could be some acknowledgement made um, by the U.S. government. You know, one really minor point, um, General Santa Ana's leg is in the um, Illinois State Military Museum. Um, They actually have Santa Ana's uh, leg there, which was captured um, on Scott's march to the Capitol. And Mexico has, uh, you know, repeatedly asked for the repatriation of that that wooden leg and uh, The museums refuse to give it up. So, you know, that would be a nice start. Let's return Santa Ana's leg. Um, You know, the fact, I'm so glad you're doing this radio show. The fact of the matter is most people in the United States don't realize that the U.S. fought a war against Mexico. And even people who live in territory taken from Mexico in 1848, most of them are not aware that that land once belonged to Mexico. So I think if there were more of an awareness um, I'm not just saying this because I'm a historian, but if there was more no historical awareness, uh, it it would it would make a dent at least in perhaps transforming the relationship between between our two countries.
0: And Donald, that brings us to some of your work on on the culture and the heritage, and uh, and also in terms of you know the border today. That it is something that this is something that really adds an extra layer and dimension to the story.
6: It does indeed. And uh, it's interesting about Santa Ana's leg. He had about 75 wooden legs. So, uh, you know, one for every occasion. So, if, you know, we sent one back, I'm not sure it would make a big difference. And of all the folks on the panel, I'm actually living in territory that used to be part of Mexico. And I can tell you that there's a lot more consciousness about the U.S. Mexican War down here than there might be uh, further north or west or east. Um, that said, you know, we've got, there's an interesting demographic thing going on. So Texas is now a um, minority-majority state. So all of a sudden this idea that uh, there's this sort of white hegemony that is going to uh, kind of go down swinging in Texas is the current debate. But what is an interesting component to that that keeps getting overlooked is that the uh, Tejano population in Texas tends to uh, be more conservative, and they are trending Republican, much to the Democrat's surprise. (laughs) And so you have this strange phenomenon where you have people of Mexican heritage that have uh, immigrated from uh, the early 20th century all the way through the mid-20th century that are now looking askance at illegal immigration coming in from Mexico, or even this... uh, idea that we need to absorb more immigration from mexico meanwhile you have mexican nationalists saying that we need to have sort of a pan hispanic world and we need to go and take back all that land so it is current events down here and uh where i live i'm actually a two-hour drive from the mexican border and um, when we're talking about folks coming across del rio that's nearly local news for me and this sort of how does the United States and mexico how do they uh how do they both occupy the same continent and get along is going to be an interesting uh component that will flavor the entire future of both nations. One thing's for sure the people with the most population usually win in history, and uh right now the trend is that there's four uh Hispanics coming to Texas for every one white. Uh, or Anglo, and so pretty soon that is going to decide the question whether anybody likes it or not.
0: Okay, well, uh, this is uh, living history and its uh, I think that's a good note on which to end our discussion. Uh, just to say that on a personal note, it's been an absolute honour and privilege uh, to, uh, to be able to ask questions to such a distinguished panel, uh, the leading experts on this subject and uh, I'm so grateful to them for giving up their time tonight. Professor Peter Gardino, uh, author of The Dead March, Professor Amy Greenberg, author of A Wicked War, Professor Daniel Geary of Trinity College, Dublin. Professor Donald Fraser, uh, author of so much on the American Civil War and the series The US and Mexico at War. Professor John Pinheiro, uh, author of Missionaries of Republicanism and Manifest Ambition. Uh, Professor Timothy Henderson, author of A Glorious Defeat. Absolutely brilliant panel tonight uh, and really bringing the the causes, the course and the consequences of a war like the American uh, Mexican War uh, to life for our listeners and showing how it resonates so much today and perhaps why should perhaps resonate more than perhaps it does. That does bring us to the end of tonight's show. My thanks to my producer, Susan Cahill, Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we've got the life and counter life of Philip Roth, plague, pestilence, and pandemics throughout history, and white freedom and the racial history of an idea. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history on News Talk.